So this basically is what this slide presentation is covering, and we got into the introduction last week. So we'll finish up the introduction this weekend, maybe get beyond it. We shall see. So for the introduction, we got to a, a definition of hermeneutics, which basically means to explain, to clarify. And I did some research on the derivation of the word hermeneutics. And the, the consensus among the scholars is that they don't know where it came from. <laughs> One of them says it probably predates the Greeks. So I don't know. Doesn't make a lot of difference. So it's the study of the methodological principles of uh, interpretation. And as we talked about before, method implies a system. There needs to be a procedure to follow. Uh, we went over the nature of hermeneutics. I'm just going to zip these up here really fast. Whoops. Uh, there's strict rules, that's the science part of it, but they have to be applied with skill, that's, that's the art part of it. It's, you, the rules are the rules, you follow the procedure, but you got to know what you're doing. And the more you do it, the more skillful you become at doing it. And it's really amazing, you may have noticed this, because it applies to all of life, really. It can be kind of boring, some people think it's boring. But the more you do something, the more your brain is trained to think that way, <laughs> and things start happening faster. Okay, and the more you, you apply these principles to Scripture in order to understand, the faster you're going to understand. Things just kind of fall into place. Now, that also requires some background study. Again, you've got to know <laughs> what you're dealing with. But... They say practice makes per perfect. That's not really true. Perfect practice makes perfect. <laughs> if you practice a mistake, you know, you get better at that mistake. <laughs> but that's about it. <clears throat> and it provides the proper tools for a, a dry, arriving at a proper understanding of the text. The objectives of the... Um, Objectives of the interpreter, you're after a clear meaning. You want to know what the writer is talking about, what point he's trying to make. <clears throat> you want to close the gaps that are going to lead to misunderstandings, cultural gaps, language gaps, history gaps, geography, and practicality. That, that last one gets into application. It's kind of the last step. The whole point of interpretation is to apply. <laughs> I mean, Scripture is here for our benefit, but you're not going to get any benefit from it if you don't apply it, as James pointed out. So that's your ultimate goal. And the interpreter's job then is to take what he learns about the meaning of the text and figure out how it applies in any given situation. Qualifications, did we go over this one? No, okay. So the qualifications of an interpreter, first of all is salvation. In um, 
First Corinthians, the first four chapters, Paul compares worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And in chapter 2, he points out that the unsaved person doesn't, it can't understand spiritual things because they're spiritually discerned and he doesn't have the spirit. <laughs> so the believer can understand spiritual things because he has the spirit within him to guide him, as Jesus told the disciples just before his arrest. Uh, he was going to send the spirit and the spirit would guide them into all truth and remind them of what he had said. <clears throat> so that's kind of a prerequisite. Uh, secondly, holiness or righteousness. Uh, these verses, 1 Peter 2.1 and, and uh, 2 Timothy 2.21 have to do with how you behave. That's why I put um, slashes up there, a slash there. Holiness, righteousness. Theologically speaking, holiness has to do with what's inside, your nature, your, your character. Righteousness is the expression of that in how you behave. Now, terms are used different ways in different contexts. We also have a, <clears throat> excuse me, a righteous standing with God. So righteousness means to be put into a right relationship with. Okay? But in this context, he's talking about behavior. <clears throat> As we've discussed before, uh, sin in the believer's life is kind of a roadblock. It interrupts that communion with God. So if you've got a, a problem <laughs> in your life, you're not going to get much help from the Holy Spirit because you've introduced an impediment there. So that doesn't mean you're perfect or sinless or anything like that. <clears throat> it just means um, you've got to keep a clear path. Don't let things build up. have to have a desire to understand. Again, First Peter 2, he says, desire the sincere milk of the Word. I think every believer, especially right after salvation, suddenly has that desire <laughs> to devour the Word, you know, to get in there and, and just... I remember it... <clears throat> spring of 1972. Every Saturday morning... Jehovah's Witnesses at the door. And I was frustrated because I had taken a class in cults, comparative religions in college, so I knew they were wrong, I knew why they were wrong, but I was always stumbling trying to work through these things in a conversation with them because they have a, a program track, you know, that they, a little spiel that they have, and there's no chance of reasoning because there's no room for that. So I was a little frustrated. So I did my own study of Jehovah's Witnesses. Got out my books from college on the cults and theology and all of that stuff. And did my own study, the history and the founder and the, all the leaders, the doctrinal changes and all of that stuff. So I had a better understanding of what they're all about. But as I was looking up passages of Scripture to answer their errors... I found myself at times looking up a verse and then 15 minutes later I'd catch myself just still reading, <laughs> just absorbing. You know, I went past the study of Jehovah's Witnesses and just, just all of a sudden 
Wow, I never saw that before. <clears throat> but you have to have that desire. I mean, if you don't have a desire to understand the word, why do it? You know, it's, it's kind of a one of those, duh. <laughs> if you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it. But it kind of comes with the territory. Um, a reverential faith. Psalm 119 is all about God's Word, and David is always praying in there about, um, you know, teach me your Word, and some of these passages... Um, I didn't put them up. Did I put them up there? No, I didn't put them up there. They come in a later slide. Okay. Oops. Anyway... It's all about learning the word. You got to trust it. You know, you have this is God's word. <laughs> so when you read it, you're going to have to take it seriously. You have to reverence the word. You don't worship the word, but it's God's word. It's his communication. So you have to take it seriously. Um, and then finally dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's kind of like the first one. In 2 Peter 1:21, Peter says that the writers of scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. <clears throat> and 2 Timothy 3.16 uh, talks about uh, the Word being inspired and profitable and all of that stuff. But who, in, who inspired the Word? It was the Spirit. And there are the verses from Psalm 119 where David is saying, teach me, help me to understand, and give me the insight that I need. Um, you have to depend on the Spirit to do that. You don't get that on your own. Things that are spiritually discerned have to be, have their source in the Spirit. Everybody finish writing it down. <laughs> the assumptions of the interpreter. Now, assumption is not necessarily a bad word. These are presuppositions. Everybody has presuppositions. <laughs> you can't avoid it. You just have to be sure that your presuppositions or your assumptions are based on facts. Uh, the common understanding of an assumption is something you believe is true when you really can't prove it is true. <laughs> that, that's sort of in there, but at the same time, um, assumptions can be based on facts. For example, <clears throat> tonight when, when you, each of you came in this room, you chose that chair and you sat in that chair. What did you assume before you sat in that chair? It's going to hold you up. <laughs> now, is that an irrational assumption? I mean, in some cases, you've sat in that chair before. No, it's not irrational. This goes also, this is an argument against the idea that faith and reason are incompatible, that they're opposites. Um, faith and reason are not opposites. Faith is based on reason. Some people define faith as believing something when you have no evidence for it. No, faith is the choice you make to believe something after you've considered the evidence. <laughs> yeah. 
So, how many chairs in your life that you've sat in have not held you up? <laughs> yeah, not many, okay. <laughs> so, of all the chairs that you've sat in throughout your life, they have held you up. So, it's a logical assumption that this chair is going to hold you up. This is called an inductive leap. It's an inductive argument. Induction starts with all the facts, and you look at the facts, you examine the facts, you compare, you contrast, you analyze, and based on all of that, you come to a conclusion. Now that conclusion, you have to be careful, I have to qualify it, is likely, or probably, or possibly, <laughs> because you never know if you have all the information. So because all of the chairs you've sat in in your life have held you up, then it's likely that this one will hold, will hold you up. So that assumption is perfectly reasonable, perfectly logical. I remember once in seminary, um, in chapel they had pews, wooden pews, and the most uncomfortable things. Anyway, we're sitting there, we're sitting there in the middle of chapel, and all of a sudden, you know, the preacher's up there, and all of a sudden, we hear this big crack. <laughs> and about halfway down, there were about five guys sitting on this pew, and they all kind of looked at each other. You know, the rest of us saying, what's going on? And about 30 seconds later, another big crack, and all five of those guys just stood up, and the thing collapsed. <laughs> it was split right down the middle. <clears throat> Had no idea why. Um... But most of the time, the chair is going to hold you up. <laughs> so having assumptions is not bad. You just have to be sure they're accurate. Okay. So the first thing that the interpreter assumes is that the Bible is true. Again, why would you bother trying to understand it if you didn't think it had something worthwhile in there? And theologically, we talk about plenary or plenary verbal inspiration. I guess the preferred pronunciation is plenary, but I prefer short vowels. I don't know why. I see. Plenary. I always have. Plenary, that's what I... Yeah. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Hang on. <laughs> I'm not going to leave you hanging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... This is a typical position of conservatives, um, plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary means complete in all aspects, every respect, unqualified. It is whole. It is complete. In um, um, organizations where they have meetings, like national meetings or whatever, they usually call those plenary or plenary sessions because everyone involved is going to be there. <laughs> so it's the, the idea of completeness. Okay. Applied to Scripture, it means that all that God inspired is in the Bible. That is the totality of what He has inspired. And every bit of it is inspired. There isn't any part of the Bible that isn't inspired. We'll talk about inspiration in a few minutes. So, the whole Bible is inspired by God. And that's the totality of his inspiration. <clears throat> if 
the verbal part has to do, of course, with words. All right? And in application, every word of the Bible is inspired. So plenary means the whole thing, cover to cover, is inspired, and verbal means every word. Some people say, well, God kind of gave the writers the basic idea and left it up to them as to how they expressed it. That's not what inspiration means. <laughs> inspiration means to be breathed out by God. He didn't leave, the, leave much room for interpretation, hermeneutics. He told them what to write. It wasn't a dictatorship. He didn't dictate word for word what they would say. He preserved their individuality, their writing style, and all of that stuff. But he made sure that what they wrote was what he wanted written. So every word comes from the mouth of God. <clears throat> Another assumption is that the canon is closed. There is no more... There are no more additions to or subtractions from the Bible. People are sometimes confused about how the canon was formed. In the fourth century, there were several church councils, the, the official church, that the headquarters, <laughs> got together to discuss different issues that were coming up in churches in different places. And one of the issues they dealt with was what constitutes the Bible, which books are in there and which aren't. Up to that time, people had suggested different canons. The word canon means a rule, a rod, a measuring thing. This is the standard. So some various people came up with various canons. <clears throat> and the church said, we got to put an end to this. <laughs> well, let's nail this down. But they didn't decide. A lot of people criticized it. Oh, the Bible just was a product of this group that got together and decided. Yeah, that's not what they did. They had several criteria, we'll get to that in a minute, for determining what should or shouldn't be in the Bible. Okay. But the point for hermeneutics is, it's finished, it's closed. You're not going to get any more inspiration. Uh, final assumption there is that we have the true text. Again, kind of goes back to the first one. <laughs> it has to do with the accuracy of, of the, um, well, the purity of Scripture has been maintained. It's been around for a long time, been copied a lot of times. You have to assume that the text that you're working with is accurate. It has been preserved. Now, we can get into trouble with this. Um, it has to do with the accuracy of the original language manuscripts. They were all hand-copied. We don't have the original ones that, like Paul and Peter and James, wrote by hand. We have copies of those, but we have copies that are very close to. So we're, we are reasonably sure of the accuracy of those original manuscripts. Where we get into trouble is, as time goes by, you've got copies of copies of copies of copies, and that allows room for errors to creep in. Okay. And so the later copies are generally considered to be less reliable than the older copies, because the older copies didn't have enough 
there wasn't enough time for error to creep in. <coughs> <coughs> Yeah, as I said before, the, the scholars who put the King James Version together did a fantastic job based on what they had to work with. But since then, we've discovered older manuscripts. <laughs> so we've got a better idea of what the text actually, actually said. <clears throat> but I was going to discuss that anyway, so it's good that you brought it up. Um, there are people, not, you don't hear about it so much anymore, but back in the 70s when these newer translations were coming out, there was a movement, you know, the King James only. They're still out there, but they're not as vocal. I don't, I don't hear about them as much. But yeah, you know, they, inspiration applies to the original documents that the apostles wrote down or the writers of the Old Testament wrote down. It doesn't apply to copies, <laughs> because God didn't inspire the copies, he <laughs> inspired the original. But the King James people, in rebellion against these newer translations, said, well, God inspired the King James Version. That's the only inspired version. No, <laughs> inspiration doesn't apply to copies, it applies to the originals. So they claim authority for the King James because they say it was inspired. By the way, it's called the authorized version, not because God authorized it, but because King James authorized it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do they do with the fact that, I, I mean, it is a fact that I, the meaning of words change. Mm -hmm. I, I, there are specific places that we can point to, like uh, prevent needing to be um, uh, changed to precede. Right. And um, I think it's First Thessalonians. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the meaning of a word changes, it doesn't mean that um, that it's not inspired anymore. It just means that it's an inaccurate mm -hmm. uh, translation of the word. Well, not so much inaccurate; it's just anachronistic. Okay. Yes. That's yeah. Word. Yeah. Are you familiar with the Oxford English Dictionary? It's like ten volumes, you know. <laughs> uh, it traces. The, the changes, I don't want to, I want to say in every word in English, but not everywhere. <laughs> but if you look up a word in the Oxford English Dictionary, it will show you how it changed meanings over time. <clears throat> and that's a problem we have with the King James. That's 1611 English. We don't talk that way anymore. <laughs> so the words are just, some of them are just strange. We get used to the sounds, all the these and thous and stuff like that, but the meanings are off. <laughs> That's a can of worms. <clears throat> it depends on how you define accurate. <laughs> it depends. In fact, I have a handout that I was going to give out later, but I might give it out tonight. It depends... Again, it depends on how you define accurate. For me, personally, I like words. 
You know, so I go with the, with the translations that deal with the words, that deal with the text at the level of the words. I don't like the newer ones like the NIV who give you the idea. It's too loose, you know, because they might say it the wrong way. In fact, one example of that is in the NIV, just about every time they deal with a passage that uses <coughs> excuse me, the word flesh, they interpret it as the old sin nature. That's not a translation. That's an interpretation. Translation says, the Greek says sarks, that's equivalent to the English flesh. <laughs> that's translating. They see sarks and they, they render it as old sin nature. That's not a translation. That's an interpretation. And that drives me up the wall. Now, it's, it's, it's much smoother English, <laughs> you know, but um, to me, it's not as accurate. Um, so, I, I would go, I go with the New American Standard, ESV, Holman, they're, they're kind of on the same level, they're at the word level. <clears throat> Just about anything that you can draw strong components to, is good at word. Yeah. Word level translation. Right. Mm -hmm. um, how about the Amplified? The Amplified is not a translation, it's, it's, it's an amplification. <laughs> it's a commentary. And if you ever have you've ever read the Amplified, it, you know it, the you'll be reading along. It'll give one of the key words, and it will give like four or five synonyms in line after it. You know, you think, what does this mean? Because <laughs> he's giving me several words instead of just one. But they're trying to bring out the 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 range of meaning of those key words. Okay. So it, it can be helpful. You can do the same thing with a concordance. You know. um, it just takes a little longer, but um, it makes reading the scripture easier. Okay. Uh, let me give you that handout, as long as we're doing that. Uh, so, you probably figured this chart out already. Uh, I got this off the web, and the, the website, if you can see it, is at both the top and the bottom. Uh, if you wanted to go there, you could, of course, on your computer, you can expand this and read it better. But you'll notice the older translations are at the bottom, the newer ones are at the top. And it shows the train of translations and how they relate to each other. And that column on the right gives you a little summary of the character of each of those translations. But across the top, you see on the left, you have the word-for-word -word translations, and then the more you go to the right, you get more into the thought-for-thought, -thought, the idea translations. <clears throat> So if you're looking for a modern translation, you can kind of go to the bookstore and <laughs> take this with you and look at each of these things and see which one you like better. So for accuracy's sake, as I said, I like New American Standard, those word-for-word -word, uh, translations because they really are translations and they give you a better idea of what the original was like, a better idea of how words go together to form the to form the thoughts of a sentence. Um, it's not the smoothest English, but uh, so what? <laughs> For me, I want to know what the words say. 
<clears throat> so the further you go to the right, where you get to the thought-for-thought thought translations, the smoother the English is. But from my point of view, it's less accurate. And if you can follow all of those lines, <laughs> you, know, you get you go blind doing that. But you can kind of trace the development of, of the translations over time. And of course, this is not all of the different versions. Um, so the King James, 1611, um, a new translation. Well, in the history, you remember, in the mid-1500s, Henry VIII broke from the Catholic Church. He said, we're England. We don't need the Catholic Church. So we don't need to answer to Rome. We need our own church. And so he cut ties with, with Rome, but he didn't change anything. <laughs> the, the, yeah, no, that too. The Anglican Church is basically the Catholic Church in England. The doctrine and practice is still Catholic. They just changed the name, and now they're answerable to the King of England and no longer to the Pope. In, in America, the Anglican Church is the Episcopal Church. Uh, so, King James, he came along and he thought, well, if we have our own church, we ought to have our own Bible. Because <laughs> they were still using the Vulgate, you know, that the Catholic Church was using. So he authorized a new translation in English to go along with the English Church. They did a good, did a good job um, the effectiveness, um, and this is my point of view on this, I think the effectiveness of the King James Version over the all these hundreds of years up until these newer translations came out, I think the effectiveness of the King James was due to God's grace rather than the quality of the translation. God can use anything to get someone's attention. <laughs> Yeah, he could use a butterfly landing on a flower to wake somebody up to spirituality. <laughs> That's not going to save him, but it's got him thinking in the right direction. And, you know, God is always more concerned about the heart condition than anything else. And so even if the King James has some little inaccuracies here and there, there's enough of the truth there. So if someone moves in that direction, God says, That's good enough for me. <laughs> and he takes it. <clears throat> I don't think that's justification for maintaining <laughs> that translation. Uh, again, people like it. We're going to get into this more a little later on. But uh, if you like the King James, fine. Or the New King James, which updates some of the words, that's fine. Um, anyway, this um, we'll show you some of the versions. Any... Uh, Observations about any of that? Yeah, I do want to show, um, point out. <coughs> notice at the bottom you see the Latin Vulgate, mm -hmm. and we've got a big um, time span yeah. from the Latin Vulgate to when we start to see really an explosion of translations. Um, Wycliffe was working against the will of Rome. Yeah. Um, and, and really, when you see the Erasmus Greek text, that's interesting because Erasmus was really Martin Luther's counterpart. Mm -hmm. He was collecting this Greek text, and here it's the Roman Catholic Church trying to prevent anyone from providing any translation of Latin Vulgate. They just wanted to keep it in the Latin Vulgate. Erasmus started compiling this Greek text. He was in support of the Pope. Luther ended up using that Greek text to provide some of the earliest translations. And then you got, you get this explosion of translations that are developed from that Erasmus Greek text. 
as well as the invention of the uh, Gutenberg Press, mm -hmm. right around the time of the Reformation, just think about how God is working in that time to, to just help bring the Word of God to really kind of decentralize it from the control of just Catholic priests, you know, into the hands of people from different nations and different countries who will read it in, in their own language. Um, so, I, I mean, really the Reformation, that, that explosion really right, happened right about the Reformation. Right, right. Um, could you say something about the Apocrypha? Um, the Catholic Church has uh, several books that are from the 400 years between the mm -hmm. Old and New Testament. And uh, why don't we have those? Um, uh, uh, just, just comment on those, because clearly uh, these are uh, a different version of the Bible. Right. <coughs> Yeah, the Apocrypha were, were books, I, I want to say, related to spiritual things, written between the Old and New Testaments, those four, and actually even into the first century. Uh, there was Apocrypha being in, into the second century as well, with the Gospel of Thomas and stuff like that. They were not scripture, they were not inspired. A lot of it was history, like the Maccabees, the War of with the Maccabees against Rome and all of that stuff. Um, there is wisdom literature in there. Some of it was... How am I going to say this? It had things that could be personally helpful to people. As we talked about when we were studying Jude, when he goes back to the Enoch, you know. That's, Enoch was one of those apocryphal things. <clears throat> you might get some spiritual insight from them, but they weren't inspired. There, there are historical errors in there and all of that stuff. Why does the Catholic Church include them? Because, because there are a couple places in the Apocrypha that teach doctrines that the Catholic Church taught, like infant baptism and purgatory, I think. And because they wanted scriptural support for those doctrines, which they're not in the Bible, <laughs> they found the Apocrypha. Oh, these teach what we teach, therefore they must be scripture. So. I, I think there's a connection there with the Reformation also. <coughs> the Apocrypha, though, was included with the Latin Vulgate. Uh, the earliest editions of the Latin Vulgate, Jerome was the one that put it together. He then acknowledged that this is not scripture. These are just helpful texts. Mm -hmm. um, the Catholic Church officially, in, in their kind of uh, history, added it as part of the canon at the Council of Trent which was in response to the Reformation. And when was the Council? Council of Trent, I think, I want to say 1540. Something like that. Yes, 1540. Yeah. So it was, it was about 20, 25 years after, 25 years after you know, Martin Luther put, the, put his 95 theses on the Castle of Wittenberg. So it was really in response to the Protestant Reformation and them trying to say, no, we've got, you know, trying to affirm their own doctrine, and these are also part of the canon. But if you look at the earliest church fathers, um, there are some variations, but those books they added, um, by and large, are not considered. So they were not part of the, the Bible until the, uh, the 15th According to, yeah, not according to the Catholic Church. I mean, we, we wouldn't acknowledge it anyway, but it's almost like, you know, we can read Pilgrim Progress. It's not canonical, but we would say it's helpful. Yeah. You know, so they would they would treat um, the <coughs> kind of the same way, and, and it would be in some ways, you know, a lot of those books, but... 
when you read the Apocrypha, I mean, even, even the authors of the Apocrypha, at least a couple of them, will say this is not the words of a prophet, which is one of the requirements of a canonical book, that it's written by a prophet of God. Um, so the Apocrypha itself does not even attest to its own um, authority. But the Roman Catholic Church, and of course this is my viewpoint, but the Roman Catholic Church really <coughs> canonized it as part of their agenda to try to become a Protestant Reformation. Council of A couple more things about the accuracy of the of the manuscripts and our current texts. As we've already discussed, the, the, the more you copy something, the more room there is for errors, and there are variants in many of those manuscripts. Not errors, just variant differences. <laughs> okay. For example, one gospel when the when the women came to the tomb, you know, first thing in the morning, one gospel says that there were two angels there. Another gospel says an angel spoke, and people say, "Well, that's a that's a contradiction," you know, because they're not the same. That's a, a variant. That's a, a an alternate reading. It doesn't mean that one is right and one is wrong. It's just you can see how they go together. There are two angels there, and one of them did the talking. <laughs> it's not a contradiction. It fits perfectly well. <clears throat> the thing is, we know where those variants come in and when they came in, probably how, who put them there in many cases. Sometimes a scribe down the line read a verse and said, well, that's not very clear, so he puts a marginal note clarifying what that verse is talking about, and the next guy who copies that says, oh, that belongs in the text. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't belong in the text. There are people who, who try to disprove the Bible based on this idea of variance. You know, you can't trust the documents because there are all these differences. Most of the differences are just spelling, punctuation, uh, maybe using a synonym, you know, instead of the other word. Um, they don't change any meaning anywhere. There's one famous guy out there, Bart Ehrman. You may be familiar with him. But he was, he went to Moody and was studying to be a pastor, and then he got into this idea of the variance, and he got the idea, well, then you can't trust it. And so now he's a skeptic, and he's, he's a, a New Testament scholar who teaches... Uh, I'm trying to remember where is North North Carolina, yeah. Um, but he himself has pointed out that we can identify the variants, and and because of that, we know what the accurate text is. Something you're shooting yourself down, <laughs> you know. So it's not a problem. Okay, we can get back to the accurate text, but. That's an assumption that the interpreter has to make, that the text he's dealing with is accurate. Otherwise, again, what's the point? So, canonicity, we have here the criteria that the, the, that the church used to determine which books belonged in the canon and which didn't. And that's kind of small for you to see, I guess. Um, <clears throat> first of all, it had to be written by a recognized prophet or apostle. Okay. 
secondly, it had to be written by those who associated with a recognized, like Mark. You know, he wrote and basically copied down Peter's experiences with Christ. Yeah, we don't know who wrote some of the books. Yeah. Well, most of them we do. The only Hebrews, we're not sure, uh, in. And the Jude was questioned for a long time, but they finally said, okay, it was Jude. I think Hebrews is the only one that hasn't been nailed down. Yeah. But whoever wrote it was certainly influenced by Paul <laughs> because the doctrine in there is, is very compatible with everything Paul said. Uh, thirdly, truthfulness. And they have a... <laughs> Uh, Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that God is going to raise up a prophet, you know, like me. And he said, you can tell a genuine prophet from a fake prophet because a genuine prophet will tell you something that actually comes true. <laughs> if a person prophesies and says he's prophesying in the name of God and what he prophesies doesn't happen, he's not a prophet of God. So truthfulness. Uh, fourthly, faithfulness to previously accepted canonical writings. Consistency. We've talked about this before. No verse or passage stands by itself. It's going to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. And so they looked at these questionable books and said, well, how does this line up with what the rest of the, with the, what the accepted books have said? Um, Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah is... God is speaking to Israel through Isaiah and, and about these false teachers. And he, he says, no matter what they tell you, compare it to what you already been, what has already been revealed. It's got to be consistent or it doesn't count. Uh, then it has to be confirmed by Christ, uh, a prophet or an apostle. I um, have a couple of verses there. Uh, for example, this comes up in a later slide, Christ quoted from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and which verified that it was authoritative. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And then finally, church usage and recognition. The council said, okay, we have these books that people say are scripture and some of these are questionable, what do all of the churches say? So they kind of polled all the churches, like which books do you think are authoritative? Which ones have you been using in your, in your church services, whatever? So the council didn't get together and dis decide this all on their own. It wasn't an arbitrary thing. They really depended quite heavily on what the church at large accepted as authoritative. <clears throat> So, with all of that, we can be confident that the text we have is the text of Scripture, is the canon. <clears throat> just add, um, number four is a great point, the faithfulness to previously accepted canonical writings. Sometimes you'll come across cults that have additional writings, yeah. um, and the difference is, you know, when you look at the New Testament the Old Testament, the New Testament builds off the Old Testament. I mean, it really just connects perfectly. You can argue a lot of New Testament uh, theology from the Old Testament. Right. But you get something like, for instance, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, all the stuff that they have, it actually contradicts. So for, for Mormons, they would say, you need these books to understand the truth. 
and that's the difference between, for instance, us and the New Testament writings, which do not refute anything of the Old Testament, but actually confirm the Old Testament. And, for instance, if we were to share the Gospel, you could share the Gospel completely from the Old Testament. So the New Testament really is a confirmation um, and, and built upon the promises of the Old Testament, but a lot of these cults that have additional writings, they just outright contradict what's there. Um, so that, that's one of the big differences uh, that we have with the full canon of Scripture between Old and New Testament uh, versus what um, some of the cults do. Yeah, yeah. And this is why they rejected the Apocrypha, <laughs> because it didn't match up with any of these things. <clears throat> now the equipment of the interpreter <laughs> yeah uh, here, whatever that word is, is that apocrypha, apocrypha yeah. yeah so was that written after the old testament after after the old testament before the new testament okay. so in between the periods yeah. okay i see what you're saying now i forget it so you can check if you're using it you're using the old testament to reference everything basically whatever else is going yeah, well, the New Testament writings confirm the Old Testament. Right. I mean, they confirm what was promised for the Old Testament. They, they tie back. I mean, a lot of the wisdom of the Old Testament just comes forward. In the, so the New Testament does not contradict anything in the Old Testament. It may provide some additional revelation, but it really builds off of what's revealed in the Old Testament without contradicting it. Yeah. And the Apocrypha is not consistent with either the Old Testament or the New Testament. <laughs> it's, a, it's its own animal. And the Jews, just to add another testimony to them, the Jews recognized that they did not have a prophetic right. voice during that mm -hmm. period of time between um, the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament. In fact, I mean, it's amazing. They, they recognize there's been prophetic silence during that entire time. And then what do you see when John the Baptist comes? Everyone knows he's a prophet. Mm -hmm. So somehow God made that clear when a prophet was amongst them. And, um, and according to their own history, Jewish history, they don't recognize anything after Nehemiah as being prophetic from the Old Testament, Nehemiah and Malachi. Right. <clears throat> so, one of the tools is language. You have to be aware of the original languages, the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, the better you know the languages, um, the easier you can interpret something. <laughs> and this, again, is where, where practice makes it easier. The more you deal with the language, languages, the more familiar you become with them, the faster you can go through this whole process. <clears throat> you don't have to be an expert in the original languages. There are plenty of language helps out there. Uh, the more familiar with them you are, the easier it is for you to do the work. I never did learn Hebrew. I got along okay with Greek. But Hebrew is just so strange. <laughs> Plus, the teacher I had, I guess I had two teachers. The primary teacher I had, the one I had for most of the Hebrew classes, it's a brilliant guy. But there were like 20 students in the class and about five students got it and so the teacher taught to those five students and the rest of us are sitting there okay <laughs> didn't get didn't get a thing i did however get an a in one hebrew class that i took i didn't learn a bit of hebrew <laughs> but i got an a 
what happened was <laughs> what we yeah no no this no there was only one grade for the class it was a term paper Okay, no tests, no quizzes, or anything like that. The whole grade for the class was just on this term paper. And the class consisted of doing translation work from the book of Isaiah. So we all had our Hebrew Bibles there, and we're reading through Isaiah, and he would say, okay, take these verses in this chapter tonight and translate them. So, um, okay. So... I'm sweating the, <laughs> the final, which is just that. Actually, it, was, it wasn't a term paper. It's the final exam. It was an essay. And so I'm sweating, sweating it. And the question, the grade for the whole class, trace the flow of thought through the book of Isaiah. I'm an English major. I'm a writer. <laughs> you don't need Hebrew. <laughs> to trace the flow of thought through Isaiah. So I got an A in the class. I didn't learn a bit of Hebrew. <laughs> I wish I had, you know, but anyway. <clears throat> so familiarity with the languages. That deals with the forms and the meanings of words, the meanings of the clauses and the sentences, how they go together, being able to to analyze the structure of the original language helps you to get the point. History is another tool. Uh, Extra-biblical sources. Uh, knowing the um, historical context helps. The big wide world context <laughs> surrounding what's going on. And I put Joan up there as an, as an example, and you're all familiar with the story, God told them to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent or they'd be destroyed in 40 days, whatever it was. And Jonah said, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> he went the other way. Why did Jonah not want to do that? They don't want to... The Ninevites were cruel people. I mean, this, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. The Assyrians invented crucifixion. <laughs> they were, you know, they had all kinds of tortuous kinds of death for their enemies. They were terrible people, and they were Israel's enemy. Yeah, and he said, I'm not going to be part of that. <laughs> I want to see him judged, you know. I don't want to see him repent. But, and you know, he eventually went back and preached, and they repented, and God forgave them, and he's upset. <laughs> so he goes on the top of the hill and sits there. I'm going to see what happens to these people. Of course, nothing did. <clears throat> But understanding the cultural context there, what was going on, explains why Jonah didn't want to do that. You know, he was. Some people say he was prejudiced against the Assyrians. He was just ticked off at them because they were such a cruel people. Well, <laughs> that's true too. Philosophy helps. Knowing the, the cultural context, the philosophical thought process of, of the people at the time helps. For example, the word word, logos, from Greek, um, the Greeks used it to refer to the reason or the rationale behind everything. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was it. 
that refers to Christ, but Christ is the reason for everything. And if you go to uh, Colossians chapter 1, he created everything, nothing exists that he didn't create, and he holds everything together. He's the glue of the universe, okay? That's the rationale, the reason. But the Jews use the word to refer to the voice of God speaking to them. Hebrews 1.1, God spoke before in many ways through the prophets, etc., but lately he spoke through his son, the word. So it's the voice of God. So understanding how they use the term helps you understand what that term means in that context. So studying the philosophical backgrounds helps. <clears throat> We're out of time. So any uh, comments or observations about any of that? Yeah. On that one section, the criteria of the canon or whatever, yeah. I I do have a, no, that's right. but I don't have copies. <laughs> I'll bring you copies next week. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's one of the one of the difficulties of doing a PowerPoint is that you're limited <laughs> the size of what you can put on there. Yeah. Um, they make a um, projector that fits on my phone that will project something like. <laughs> Yeah, so if we had a bigger screen here, you know, <laughs> we might be able to do it that way. Anything else? All right, let's close in prayer.